Open your Bibles, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 10. Hebrews 9, 1 to 10. We continue our sermon series in the book of Hebrews. We are reminded that the author's theme, arguably the preacher's theme, this really is a sermon put down in writing, the preacher's theme is to drive home the importance of holding on to Christ Jesus. Twice he uses the very title of our sermon series, Hold Fast Our Confession. Four other times he says that same thing in slightly different words. The point of this book is to get us to hang on to Jesus, no matter what else is going on around us. And toward that end, he continues now to talk about things that would be important to his first century audience, religious things that were of high esteem to them, and then he tries to show, and I would take out the word tries, he shows how Jesus is superior to these things they held as important. So join me now in Hebrews 9, beginning in verse one. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship at an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind, behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I want to stop for a moment. We have in verse 4 a rather significant difficulty, and I don't want to just sweep it under the rug. Our author seems to place the golden altar of incense inside the most holy place, behind the second curtain. Now, the Hebrew text of the book of Exodus clearly puts the altar outside that curtain in the holy place, in the outer room, together with the lampstand and the table and the bread. So what's going on? Do we have a situation where Scripture contradicts Scripture? There are a lot of technicalities we could wrestle with in all of this, but I just kind of want to bore down to what I think is the key issue. So first of all, I want to read for you, I want to quote for you, 1 Kings 6, 22. The altar a portion of 1 Kings 6.22, the altar which belonged to the inner sanctuary. We see right there that even in the Hebrew Old Testament, there are some wording that seems to imply that that altar might have been in the inner part of the sanctuary. Second, I want to share with you this fact. The author of Hebrews, the writer of this book, he routinely quotes what's called the Septuagint, 
the Greek version of the Old Testament. Even back then, there were different versions of the Bible in different languages. He was a Greek speaker, so he read the Greek Old Testament. And that Greek Old Testament, the wording there is not as clear as it is in the Hebrew version of Exodus. There is some ambiguity about the location of this altar. And then I want to thirdly say this. This guy who read the Greek Old Testament writes the book of Hebrews in Greek. And in his Greek form of the book of Hebrews, there is some uncertainty about what he means for the location of the altar of incense. In other words, there is the possibility that he's not actually describing its physical location, but its spiritual association. You see, the priests were to burn incense on the altar. Those incense were to waft into the most holy place, into the presence of God, and be pleasing to God. So this altar of incense became closely associated with what went on behind that second curtain. And it may be that our author is not saying that it was actually located behind the second curtain, but rather that it was associated with what happened there. So, in a nutshell... The Bible he was reading words things in a way that's a little vague. His writing seems to reflect that vagueness. And so we have a difficult text. Now, I don't know if I've resolved it to your satisfaction, but I would like to point this out. There's some good news here for us. The author of this book and the Holy Spirit who inspired him seem okay with him using as authoritative the Greek version of the Old Testament. In other words, he didn't have to go back to the Hebrew Bible to have the real Bible. The Bible that God had ordained for him to have was authoritative in his life. And that means this to you and me. That English Bible in your lap really is the Word of God. You don't need to wonder. You don't need to doubt. Are there, is there value in knowing the original languages? Absolutely. Is there, are there nuances that we can glean from that? Sure. But it doesn't undo that Bible you have. It is God's Word to you. We can move forward with confidence using the Eastern Shore version. We pick up now in verse 6. As we do so, I want you to notice how the verb tenses are all present. That's going to be important to us later. Verse 6. These preparations, uh, that is the arrangement of all the furniture, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. An unintentional sin is not like someone accidentally having an affair and cheating on their spouse. That's not what it means here. Rather, what is being said here is this idea that these are the sins committed in the weakness of our flesh and not outright defiance of God's authority. 
In other words, they're not the unpardonable sin. These are those who fail because of their human frailty, but they aren't defying God's right to rule over them. Uh, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. I'm sorry, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Let's seek God's help in understanding his word. Spirit of God, we do ask that you would render our hearts soft and open, our wills pliable, our spirits submissive, that we would hear what you have to say to us. And Lord, let my words be yours, and if I say anything that is out of accord with what you would have us hear, let it be forgotten so that you shine through, and your message to us is what is remembered. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Some years ago, I attended a Catholic service, and I participated in the fullness of the Mass, even including taking the communion as part of the Catholic service. When I shared that fact with some of my friends, they were aghast. They couldn't believe that I had participated in that, that false religious activity. And I have to admit, at the time, I was kind of scratching my head going, what's the big deal? And they were like, don't you understand? In the Catholic Mass, they're sacrificing the Christ all over again. And I was like, but that's not what I'm doing. That's not how I was participating in it. And so there was, for me, this time of confusion about how I should relate to religious ceremonies that are conducted wrongly. Now, I will tell you, you don't need to sort that one out in your head. I found out later, Catholic communion is a closed communion. I wasn't supposed to be partaking. They don't want Protestants to partake of their communion. So that settles that. Next time I'm in a Catholic service, I don't partake. Okay? That's, that's the easy part of it. But it did leave that lingering question, how do we relate to religious rites that are performed wrongly? You know, if you think about our, our uh, New Testament reading this morning, those selected verses out of the book of Acts, they were for me, as I began to pull this sermon together, began to look at those verses, a little shocking to me. I had never, despite having gone through the book of Acts, it had never really clicked in my brain the significance of that New Testament reading. But here we have, on three different occasions, the apostles participating in temple worship after the resurrection, after Pentecost, after the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They were partaking of the temple worship and the sacrificial rituals that would have been a part of that. And the longer version of that third verse, that third reading from the later part of Acts, the longer version of that, when Paul goes to the temple, he does so at the instruction of James, the James the Just, the younger half-brother of Jesus. When Paul arrives in Jerusalem, there's all this uproar. 
Why? Because Paul's the guy who's been out there preaching against circumcision. Paul's the guy who has been going into the, the, the cities around the world and, and saying you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. And the Jews in Jerusalem are they're just astounded. They're like, what are you doing? How can you do away with the law of Moses? What do you mean you don't have to be circumcised? And then Paul's the guy who came back to Jerusalem at an earlier visit for the council of Jerusalem, and he stood up in the midst of them, and he argued forcefully, the council of Jerusalem, we should not require our Gentile brothers to be circumcised. And the council agreed with him. There was a room full of men so far as we can tell from the names that are given, every single one of them, a Jew who was circumcised. And their conclusion is that the Gentile Christian should not have to be circumcised. And it's Paul who wrote to the Galatian church. In Galatians chapter 5, it's Paul who wrote to them that anybody who would preach circumcision in your church, Paul uses incredibly strong language. He says, if they're going to argue that a bit of the male flesh should be cut off, I wish they'd go further and cut it off. I wish they'd castrate themselves. Now that is some pretty harsh language. Paul was adamantly against teaching circumcision. And he arrives in Jerusalem and all of the Jews back in Jerusalem, including the Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem, are having a real problem with this man, Paul. How can you speak that way against the law of Moses? And what is James's solution? What does this younger half-brother of Jesus do? This leader in the Jerusalem church? And by the way, don't make no mistake. James is an incredibly important man in the Jerusalem church. At the Council of Jerusalem, when Peter and John and Paul and Barnabas are all present, it's James who wields the gavel. He's the moderator of that uh, uh, Presbyterian meeting. He's the one that's calling the shots and running the show. He's an incredibly important man. And what does he say to Paul when Paul gets to Jerusalem the second time? Go to the temple. Go participate in the temple. Go do the things required of the temple. And in so doing, you will show everybody that you do not despise the law of Moses. And you'll quiet this uproar about who you are. That was the advice of James. Now think about the position that puts Paul in. He's been arguing that, that the rituals and the practices of Judaism do not need to continue. And now James is telling him to go participate in those rituals. And Paul does it. Does that make Paul a hypocrite? Is he talking out of both sides of his mouth? Now factor this in. I mentioned the Council of Jerusalem, wherein they made the decision that circumcision would not be continued, would not be required of the Gentile believers. 
That's Acts chapter 15. In Acts 16, verse 3, we read this. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him. What's going on? How can Paul, in chapter 15, argue against circumcision, and in chapter 16, circumcise Timothy? How can Paul, in Romans 3, declare that it is only Jesus Christ who is the propitiation for sins? He's the one who, by whom sins are forgiven. All those sins of the Old Testament era, under the Levitical system, none of those were purified by the Levitical sacrifices. They were only purified in Christ Jesus, Paul argues in Romans 3. And then he turns around and acts, whatever that was, I've forgotten the chapter, he turns around and acts and goes to the temple and participates. What is going on in all of this? Well, in fact, if you looked at the New Testament readings, if you followed along as Matt was reading those, what we saw were the other key apostles. So we have James telling Paul to go to the temple and worship, and Paul does it. But we have Peter and John also worshiping in the temple, participating in all the temple rituals and rites. And we see that the broader Christian community was doing so as well. Here are arguably, I mean, if Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church, then Peter, John, Paul, and James are the four corners, the four pillars of the church upon the foundation of Christ. These guys are the, the bedrock, if you will, of New Testament Christianity. And they are participating in the sacrificial system in the temple. So is our preacher in Hebrews, is he actually writing to set them straight? Does he alone have a good soteriology, a good Christology, a good theology, that he alone understands what's going on? Is he writing this letter to try and get all of these brothers to stop going to the temple? Is that what he's writing? Well, first of all, we, have to, we can't make the mistake of thinking that holding fast our confession, holding on to Christ, means letting go of everything else. That isn't necessarily true. I can remember when the kids were little, when it was time to clean up, when you know, my wife would look at me and say, Honey, can you get the kids to put away all their toys? I'd look at one of our youngsters and say, you know, Pick up that toy, that truck and they would drop whatever they were holding. No, 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 Daddy didn't say drop that. They both need to go into the toy box. So pick back up what you had. Okay, now pick up the truck also. Okay, now take both and put them in the toy box. When he says to hold fast your confession, hold fast our confession, hold fast to Christ, he isn't necessarily saying abandon everything else. You see, it was never intended that we should go it alone in the life of faith, without any assistance or aid. Never did, the, did, the, did our God expect us, on our own, without any help, 
to simply hold on to some abstract concept of salvation in the Messiah. That's never what was set forward. In fact, our own... Uh, 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 it's interesting, in the last verse of this section, he uses the word reform. And I caught my ear as a reformed believer. I caught my attention. I was sitting there going, wait a second here. What's he talking about? And I do, I was struck by the fact that many of us who hold to the reformed faith, at least on paper, don't always hold to what it actually means in practice. You see, in our Confession of Faith, in chapter 7 of the Westminster Confession, in paragraph 6, we read the following. There are not two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same. The people of the Old Testament, so-called, were not saved through a sacrificial system, and we're saved through Christ. They were not saved through the circumcision and were saved through Christ. They were saved the same way we are saved. And our confession goes on to make that a little more clear. And I'm having a hard time finding where it is. I'm sorry. There it is. The confession says it this way. This covenant of grace was differently administered in the time of the law. Okay? not a difference of substance, it's a difference of administration. And in the time of the gospel, under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit, now listen, to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation. Think about what it's saying. It's saying that all of the stuff that was going on at the temple was sacramental worship. It was sacramental worship. What are the sacraments? They're signs. They're not the thing itself. They are not salvation. We are not saved because we are baptized. We are not saved because we partake of the Lord's table. But they are signs which point us to the salvation we have in Christ Jesus. In baptism, we see washing and we're reminded that we are cleansed in Christ. At the Lord's table, we see the cup. And we're reminded of the blood of Christ. It points us to those things. And that's what our confession is saying was going on in the Old Testament. It was the same thing. It was sacramental worship. When they stood in the temple and saw the animal slain, the true believers, the true Christians... The Davids, the Elijahs, the Elishas, the Isaiahs, the Amoses, and oh, by the way, the unnamed widow who took care of Elisha. You don't have to be a famous person to be saved. All of them, when they stood in the temple, those true believers, they didn't look at that lamb and say, it has saved me. 
They didn't look at that bull and go, oh good, because it's dead, I'm alive. What they saw in those things pointed them to the need of a savior. When their children, when their boys were circumcised, they saw a reminder of the effect of sin, that it's gross, that it's intimate, and that it cuts us off. What was that? The boundary, the, the gate to Eden? When Adam and Eve were kicked out, what was put there? A sword flashing back and forth. Quite literally, they were cut off from God. And in the rite of circumcision, they were constantly being reminded that things were cut off. At the temple, in the sacrifices, they came to understand the temple represented the presence of God. The tabernacle represented the presence of God. All around there were all these symbols of being cut off. There was a fence around it, a, a, a curtain around the tabernacle, a wall around the temple. You can't just stroll into the presence of God. You are cut off. Unless you go through the gate. And to go through the gate you had to come with a certain offering. You could not anyone just roll in to the holy place. Only the priests could go. Only God's chosen people could go there. And they had to take with them a sacrifice. But even that was still cut off from the, the very presence of God in the next room, in the most holy place. Even those priests were cut off from God. By the way, what was sewn into the curtain? Angels. Angels, cherubim, were sewn into that curtain. The same thing that had cut them off from God back in Eden was cutting them off from God there. They could not go into God's presence. They were cut off from him. Unless they had the right sacrifice. They had to go in God's way in the way that he ordained with the sacrifice. Now they did not believe, at least not the true believers, did not believe that the sacrifice saved them. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. That's why King David wrote the Psalm 110, that there would need to come a priest like Melchizedek. David knew that the system in front of him wasn't getting it done. If it was getting it done, it wouldn't have to be repeated over and over again, our author says. If sins were truly being taken care of, then we wouldn't have to keep doing this. So the very symbol that pointed to the fact that you're cut off from God also said, but there is a way back to him. He's prescribed it. It requires something else or somebody else to be cut off in your place. That lamb is cut off from the land of the living. Now you can enter into the temple. That bull is cut off from the living and now you can go into the most holy place. If something else was cut off in their place, they could go to God. But it couldn't be that the bull or the lamb or the dove or the whatever else was getting it done because they had to keep doing it. So the true believers always knew 
that what was going on there pointed them to how God was going to save them. They didn't know that his name would be Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't know exactly that, you know, that he would be born, actually by the time of later prophets, they didn't know he'd be born in Bethlehem. But early on, they didn't know he'd be born in Bethlehem. They didn't know all of the things that we know about him now. But in faith, they looked at those ritual things and were reminded that God, though they were cut off, God had made a way in. That way in was through a sacrifice who would be cut off on their behalf. And they were hoping in that. They were going to God in faith that that was adequate. And so we come back now to what's going on here in the book of Hebrews. And what we see happening is not that our author is saying, hey, you, you Jewish believers, you can't ever go to the temple. You can't ever worship the way you used to worship. For look at his wording there in, uh, I think it's actually right there in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations. He goes on to explain it. That wording, that, that wording, simple as it is, tells us the tone with which he's approaching this. When he says that, even that, he is saying, while the second covenant is better, even the first one had these good things about it. You know, if I take that tone with something I don't generally hold in high regard, if I were to, you know, it was a fun day to be a Michigan fan yesterday. Even if I were to say to you, well, even Ohio State Buckeye, you just know whatever comes next is going to be something positive I'm going to say about them. Even Ohio State Buckeyes love their mothers, I think. I couldn't come up with a second example of what I was willing to say good about Ohio State Buckeyes. But that one works. That's his thing here. When he says even, he's not running down. What comes next isn't going to be a negative thing. It's going to be a positive thing. Now, step back. He's not talking about the Ohio State Buckeyes of his life. Because remember what's been his pattern all along. is to talk about something that is highly regarded and then set Christ above it. You all love angels, you first century Jews, and he's superior to the angels. You all think very highly of Moses, and he is superior to Moses. You hold the Levitical priesthood in high regard, and he is a priest like Melchizedek of a whole different order, a whole different category. And now he is looking at the actual ceremonial acts. So he's not, he's not talking them down. He's not saying negative things about them. If he were to do that, he wouldn't accomplish his purpose of exalting Christ. If he says, hey, these things are way down here somewhere, well, it doesn't make Christ all that high or mighty. He said, no, here was the system we had. It was a God-given system. It was ordained by the Almighty. It was the true religion. And yet Christ is even above it. He's not running down Judaism. He's exalting Jesus. He's basically saying to his Jewish friends here, 
Your temptation is to return not to Judaism, but to a Jesusless Judaism. You see, the reason that Paul was willing to, to circumcise Timothy is because Paul and Timothy didn't put their faith and their hope in that circumcision. They saw it as merely a sign. They knew it had no saving power. And so he was willing to acquiesce and to make that accommodation to those who were weak in the faith. The reason Paul, James, and Paul are willing to go to the temple, even though the, the ultimate sacrifice of Christ has been made, they're willing to worship in the temple and participate in the temple rituals, because when James, the younger brother of Jesus, when he stood in that temple, just as David a thousand years earlier, when that lamb was slain, when its throat was slit and the life drained out of it, David didn't sit there and go, oh good, now I'm taken care of. He humbly stood there and watched and went, that's what I deserved. That's what should have been done to me as an adulterer and a murderer. But God has for some reason seen fit to substitute somebody else on my behalf. I'm alive, and another is cut off for me. And David's hope wasn't in that lamb. It was in the grace of God. So it was when James stood in the temple a thousand years after David, and just a few years after his older brother was killed. James wasn't in that temple. Paul wasn't in that temple. Peter and John weren't in that temple going, oh good, those sacrifices have saved us. They looked at those sacrifices and went, that's right. That's what happened to Jesus for me. That reminds me of the price my Savior paid so I could be saved. Our author is not bashing sacramental worship. He's not bashing the temple. He's not bashing the rituals of the Levitical priesthood. He is saying you can't hope in those alone. He's saying you do still have to hold fast to Christ. So where does this leave us? How does this apply to us? Right now this all seems so esoteric. It's so long ago, so far away, and so impossible today because the temple's gone. It's not like any of us are tempted to take up sacrificial ritual worship and believe in it. The temple's been removed. Well, it does address the risk of us becoming sacerdotalist, of us believing that our, sacred, our, 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 our sacraments save us. It does warn us, do not imagine for a moment that participating in this table saves you. Is the table a good thing? Yes. Were the sacrificial rituals a good thing? Yes. Is this table got a value to us? Yes. Is it a sign that points us to Christ? Yes. Is it a, the manifestation of his presence among us? Absolutely. But it does not save us. 
Should we partake as often as possible? Absolutely. But we should never partake thinking that partaking brings us home. That's the warning. He's not telling them to let go of their Judaism. He's telling them to hold on to the Christ who fulfills the Judaism. The one who makes it real and effective in their lives. Now, I don't think even that is really the application point for us. I don't get a sense that very many of us are tempted to hold to our sacraments as the proof that we are saved. I don't think I've, in the, what, six years now I've been here, I'm not sure I've ever heard any one of us even hint at the idea that, well, I know I'm saved because I've been baptized. I know I'm saved because, you know, I took communion last week. I don't hear that. I don't think that's our temptation. It is a warning that we don't fall into that path. But where do we go astray? Where can we make the mistake of believing in the, the, the ritual, the rite, the religion, rather than the God who ordained them? Well, little things like this. Here's one that is a risk, I think, for many of us. That we put our faith in our faith. That our hope is in our hope. I know I'm saved because I fill in the blank. I went forward in camp meeting. I went forward to the Billy Graham crusade. I raised my hand in, in VBS. I did this, that. I got down beside my bed and prayed the sinner's prayer. I did this. And it becomes about what we did. And now we have slipped back into this false religion. Now we are back to the things we do outwardly save us. We mustn't fall into that trap. We should not imagine that we save ourselves, that our faith in and of itself is saving faith, that we have some ability to, to cling to God and go to him. We did not sing this morning that our faith is our salvation. The Lord is our salvation. You see, this is the good news of the gospel as it's presented here to us as Presbyterians. That when your faith wanes, when doubts arise, when you're struggling to know if you actually believe enough, you aren't saved by your faith. God has saved you through Jesus Christ. Your faith did not accomplish that, but was the evidence of it. The objective historical reality is that the, the outward things we do, as important as they are, are not what save us. I know that, Pastor, so I'm just worried about whether I believe inwardly enough. No, that's not it either. It's that Christ has saved you, 
And he tells you through your faith. Christ has saved you and he tells you through the table. Christ has saved you and he tells you through your baptism. Christ has saved you and he tells you when he speaks to you every Sunday morning. That's the hope that our author has. That's where he's driving us. He's saying that in the temple, in the tabernacle, all those things were wonderful. So long as they bolster your faith in Christ. So dear Presbyterian, do not put your hope in your understanding. Do not put your hope in your doctrine. Just as these rituals were good, doctrine is good. It's absolutely important. But you can articulate all the doctrines perfectly and go to hell. Christ saves you. Hope in him. The ritual, the religion, the acts, the things we do, they point us to that, they remind us of that, they encourage us in that, they affirm that to us. But none of them save us. So hold to our faith. Hold to our Reformed confessions. Hold to our sacraments. Hold to our church. But never if that means you have to let go of Christ to do so. He's not saying that church and ritual and religion are a bad thing. He's saying we must have Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for giving us all these ways that you make known to us your saving work in us. So that when I doubt the quality of my faith, I see your table and your invitation to come and a reminder that you've made me part of your family. When I doubt the, the excellencies of my doctrine, I see your baptism and how you have washed away my sin. Even the sin of misunderstanding and false doctrine. When I wonder whether I really believe enough, I am reminded that you have saved me and I have not saved myself. But to hold fast to these things, to hold fast to our confession, is to continue in them even in the midst of those many doubts. To cling to them precisely because of our doubts. And so seek your assurance through them. We recognize that you have saved us through Jesus Christ. The one who offered up himself as the sacrifice. Who himself was cut off so that we could be reconciled. We hold fast to him by your grace and in your strength. 